My motivation actually was um, was in the science really. Uh, when I was an undergraduate we were taught by Stephen Phillips who was at WHO uh, on malaria and I was quite interested in the way malaria operated and then I did, I did an intercalated science degree and one of the things I did was looking at the variation in trypanosomes and I just I thought this was fantastic. I thought it was absolutely fantastic the way this this operated. So I became very interested in parasitology, and then decided on a career really in infectious diseases. But you know I was very keen to try and study some of these tropical diseases that I'd, I'd looked at as well. And uh, so the opportunity came up to go to Thailand to work in malaria, and that's what I did. And were you working mainly? Uh, after all, malaria is a disease that affects children. Mm. Was it mostly children you were working well, with? Well, in Thailand, um, it's slightly different um, because it's mainly adults that affects in Thailand. But in fact, what I did was I took over from Sanjeev Krishna, who was is now St George's. Um, he'd been there before me, and so um, Sanjeev, as part of his work, was setting up um, research in Ghana in Kumasi. Um, looking at some treatments of lactic acidosis and things. And so my sort of handover period involved actually going to St George's and uh, doing some work with Sanjeev and then going to Kamasi. So I worked in Kamasi uh, with Sanjeev for about three months in the first instance and then another three months later. And that was paediatric work. But that wasn't so much, it wasn't such a big jump for me really because I'd been training in Glasgow in infectious diseases and the infectious diseases hospital there had a paediatric ward. And, and infectious diseases training um, at that time involved looking after children as well. So I was fairly comfortable looking after children, um, uh, though I learned a lot in Ghana, a lot of very sick children in Ghana. Um, and uh, we sort of built a little intensive care unit in, in between the wards and did our studies as a sort of pilot for a bigger study that was going to be set up. And in fact, uh, at that time as well, uh, Steve Lawn, who's now tuberculosis HIV um, expert in South Africa, he had just arrived with his wife in Kumasi and uh, had been helping work in the TB clinic, and that was his first sort of taste of the tropics. Um, so things, yeah, moved on from there. But he's he's doing very well now. I talked to David Worrell, and of course he's a, a world expert on snake bites. Yes. Uh, he has been bitten twice by snakes, and he said it was a very dodgy experience. Have you come? close to any of the diseases you're actually studying yourself? I got dengue when I was in Thailand. I was working in a hospital up in Sanklaburi on the border and uh, we were living on the hospital site so actually I slept on a hospital bed with a mosquito net over it and uh, we uh, shared the shower with a very large frog that used to come out. Anyway I ended up getting dengue. The funniest thing was I was up in Mesop with Nick for a meeting and we had a deal, it was about an eight hour drive back from Mesot back to Bangkok and uh, we sort of had a deal, we always stopped in a place called Nakhon Sawan, this coffee house that Nick knew that we always stopped at, they had great coffee and so the deal was usually one person would drive the first four hours and the second person would drive the second four hours so Nick was driving the first bit, which is over the mountains, that's the, that's the trickiest bit um, so we got to Nakhon Sawan and I said, Nick, I don't feel very well actually <laughs> and he said, oh that's fine through me the car keys. So I drove from I drove four hours from Nakhon to Bangkok with dengue fever. <laughs> and Nick, would, Nick wouldn't do the driving again. And I was I was in bed, literally in bed, for about two weeks after that experience. So that was my that was my worst experience, I think, tropical wise. Is it more of a way of life, tropical medicine? Do you think when you look at your colleagues and indeed your own career, than people in other specialities into John Radcliffe? I yes, yes. I mean I think um there, there are a couple of things that are different, I think. I think one of the things is when you're working 
overseas and you're working um, doing research documents, completely clinical research, I think you really have to develop your clinical skills because you're working in a situation where most of the doctors are relying on their clinical skills. And you know, it, it usually puts you to shame because the most junior doctor in most of the hospitals up country in Thailand, for example, can easily administer an anaesthetic and do a cesarean section. Whereas you're so specialised that you know there's no way you could do anything like that. So you really feel that you need to sort of brush up and, and be generally a good doctor, and you're not reliant on the machines and the tests and everything the way we are in the UK. Um, you're much more self-reliant, much. Develop clinical skills much better. So I think I think that that's quite a difference, a different sort of attitude. And I think Nick um, certainly his clinical skills are pretty well honed from from all that sort of time. So you do have a different different sort of clinical medical training by doing that. Again, the other thing you see is often you see pathology that's very further advanced than you would see in the UK. So you know you're seeing patients with extreme heart failure and things that haven't been treated for a long time. So you see a lot more gross pathology. Again, which gives you a better insight, I think, into into the way things develop. And uh, I think one of the other things is, you know, in tropical medicine, you've got to be very flexible. Thinking your feet, things don't always work out the way that you need them to work out. Um, and you've got to adapt very quickly to that. And I think those sort of skills are very important for, for clinical medicine. And perhaps in the, in the NHS, things should work a bit better, but often often things come up that you, that you wouldn't expect. <laughs> so it gives you a bit, gives you a lot more flexibility and a different outlook, I think, on things. Um, and also the other good thing, of course, when you're working in the NHS and training in the UK, you, you have you're quite a narrow sort of way of looking at things. Um, and being overseas, you see different ways of doing things. Um, not necessarily better, but just different. Um, again, which gives you, keeps you open-minded about things. So I think it's a different, different sort of skill. Um, yeah, I suspect most of the other people are jealous of their travel and uh, you know, doing sort of going to exciting places and all this sort of stuff. But uh, no, I think the actual the medicine, I think, is the most important bit, actually. So it's a global enterprise now, tropical medicine here in Oxford yep. at Oxford University. How do you bring the disparate elements together? When do people meet from who are working in Kalifi in Africa? How do they meet some of their colleagues who are working in Bangkok or Laos? Yeah. First of all, we have we have a monthly telephone conference. So we call um, and have a have a sort of forum for people to bring up problems. That's very useful, particularly the way the way things develop in tropical medicine, where most trials now are big and are multinational um, and so and the amount of money that's come into tropical medicine through Gates, through Global Fund, all these sorts of things means that the funders are looking for those big sort of trials and so we need to talk to each other and make sure that everyone is happy with what's going on and that certain organisations aren't trying to take advantage or play one part against the other and um, you know, I think that is that is quite important because the global reach now means that you know a company or a private public venture can do easily do trials in Asia and Africa at the same time. And for example, we're running the Aquamat study in Artesanate. We're running it from Bangkok, but it's been run in Africa. It's a sort of replication of the study that was done in Southeast Asia. So you know, our our reach now is is very much towards those multinational, and it's very very important to to talk to each other, much more so than when I started. I mean, I hadn't actually visited Kalifi until um, until I got back to Oxford, but then I'd hardly visited Oxford when I when I was working for Oxford. <laughs> I started working in Oxford in ninety three, 
and I think I'd been here twice <laughs> for the four years before I came back to finish training in Oxford. So, and that's changed as well. I think Oxford's, um, there was a long time when, when we were quite happy overseas to ignore Oxford and Oxford ignored us to a certain extent, just allowed us to get on with things. But now again, the nature of the way trials are run, the sort of governance arrangements, the insurance arrangements, all those kind of things that never really existed before are now much more prominent in the way that you run trials. And we have to make sure that we get, achieve the same standards of run trials as someone you know, getting into trial in Mesot or Khalifi or Rwanda as, as we would do in the UK. Now whether that's appropriate or not I think is debatable um, but we certainly need to make sure that, that we can satisfy ourselves that we're doing everything that we can and that we're run as probably like, we run trials and things as would be done in the UK we're trying to reach the highest standards. One of the extraordinary things you can see in the Nuffield Department of Clinical Medicine is the intellectual scientific impact of tropical mm. medicine. Um, it's overwhelming, really. What do you put this down to? Well, I think, as I say, I think, um, I mean, it's not just tropical medicine. Infectious diseases department here um, contributes probably about a quarter of all the general medical physicians. Um, so infectious diseases are, is a very academic speciality as well. And so, and our, uh, all of our infectious diseases people have links, again, with overseas people have worked overseas, are involved in trials. So we have quite a big input in infectious diseases, which then has a big input into general medicine. And again, I think infectious diseases, particularly because we don't have a scope, you know, so we don't have a we don't have an endoscope that we can do, that we have a list where, you know, that's what you do. You do the colonoscopy and that's your sort of fixed thing you contribute. What we contribute is an, an intellectual academic input into the management of patients and the management of infections. So we're basically a consult service. Um, and so, really, the rest of the time we have to find something to do, and what we usually do is research. <laughs> so that's why there's such a big academic intellectual input, I think, infectious diseases and tropical medicine follows on from that. And again, as I say, the clinical skills are very important. Because we don't have a scope to stick into someone, what we have to do is we have to examine patients, we have to look at what's happening, we have to make decisions about how to take things further. And that's, that's sort of the clinical skills that we get from doing research, I think we bring to the bedside as well. The skills you need to be a, a good physician today are mm. very different because you have to have great management skills because mm. really you're the head of a department with quite a few arrogant, able, bright people. Mm. Are they difficult to manage? Tropical medicine, I don't think so. I think they're remarkably easy. Uh, there are very few disputes between people that I have to sort out. and. You know, I, I do think that um, because they often work in difficult circumstances where things change very rapidly, people are very flexible and very willing to see other points of view. I mean, you know, you go and work in Thailand and you have to see what the point of view of the Thai doctors is. You know, you can't, you can't come in and just impose what you think from outside. So I think people are very flexible in their outlooks about things and very willing to, to um, sort of give and take a little bit about how things go. I don't think anyone particularly is arrogant um, within our sort of network, um, I think people people are very good, and they know that they're very good, um, and they're determined to continue to be very good, uh, and that that drives things along quite well actually. But um, you know, as a group, everyone seems to get on pretty well, and there's a lot of crossover now. As I mentioned, you know, previously Asia and Africa were a little bit separate. So much crossover now between different things. For example, studies on influenza. 
um, that are started off in Southeast Asia, move into Kenya, all those sorts of things come and go in malaria in Africa and Southeast Asia, things going, going both ways. So um, I think there's a lot of cooperation. I think tropical medicine, just again, because of the nature, is difficult. You do have to cooperate quite a lot with people. And that, that, that makes things working together quite, quite straightforward, I think, actually. David Weatherall told me that when he came here, he set up a tropical day. This mm. is a day given over so that medical students could have a look at something beyond the great intellectual ring road of Oxford. What do you offer students today to give them some chance to sort of flavour what the tropical school is doing? So I continue tropical day. <laughs> I still run it. And in fact, my appointment is uh, it's quite interesting because... Um, my job title is actually Clinical Tutor in Medicine. So my appointment with the university is to organise undergraduate teaching in medicine. That's what I do, that's what I'm paid for. Um, and all the other things are, are my spare time. So, uh, so I have a lot of dealings with students. I, I see them uh, regularly, I see them every week. We run a grand round for the students. Uh, I teach them on the wards, I organise all their assessments. I do So I have quite a high profile with the students. And again, I always make it very clear about the benefits of uh, tropical medicine. But then still once a year we have this tropical day where we invite speakers from various places, including some of the speakers who are Oxford um, physicians who are overseas or who are doing laboratory work here. And we have a day completely given over to tropical medicine. And also I'm quite keen um, to allow people to have sort of hands-on looking at sort of beasties under the microscope and all this sort of stuff. I think that's quite exciting for the students as well. But, uh, yeah, I think it's very good feedback. We try and try and encourage it. And, of course, the students have elective periods that they have to do. So we, um, we're very keen for them to come to the overseas units for their electives. And, but actually, I think, I think actually most of the students now feel, you know, Thailand's a little bit boring. Um, Vietnam was the place to go to a couple of years ago, but uh, last year I think we had two students in Bhutan. <laughs> we, feel, we tell them not to go to the Congo-Rwanda border, but they seem to manage to get there for some reason. So they, they uh, yeah, they, they've spread themselves out. You've not, you haven't lost a student. Yet. We haven't lost anyone so far. <laughs> we make them do a risk assessment. <laughs> Um, about what they'll do and have a, an exit strategy about how they'll manage if they get captured by mercenaries on the Congolese border. But uh, no, we, we try and keep quite a close eye on and, 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 they, and they do very, very well. The, again, the students, the Oxford students are very able, you know, they're, they're very good and, uh, and get involved in things. And they're, they're also very keen to get involved in, in research. In fact, I had two students um, a couple of years ago and actually, I think their main their main aim was to go and see the African Cup of Nations, which has been held in Ghana and uh, Burkina Faso, and uh, so. But they they needed to to dream up a research project. So what we did was we got them to look for fake anti-malarial drugs. So they travelled round to all the various venues for the football and tried to buy. <laughs> so we've now we've now got all of those together and we're analysing them for purity. So that's all. And that, in fact, that's been done in Thailand. The analysis at the moment. So, yeah, they're very ingenious in what they, what they get up to. Since you've been in tropical medicine, the vaccine for malaria has just been around the corner. <laughs> now, you've had some false dawns in your time, but mm -hmm. what do you think of this? Because we have got a great centre here mm. uh, to study these vaccines. Do, do you think something's going to happen, or do you agree with Nick that we could still do a lot to eradicate, even without a vaccine? I think, I mean, you know, as Nick says, we, we do have tools available now that should help us to um, set the drive malaria back quite considerably. The vaccines, the, vac the, most, the most prominent candidate at the moment isn't particularly efficacious at preventing malaria, 
it may well prevent severe disease, which you know in itself is is, is not a bad thing. Um, but really, as far as public health control measures are concerned, I think the, the work with bed nets and the work with artemisinin and combination therapy, um, and again vector control, all of these things do mean that we should be able to control malaria pretty quickly. And the vaccine, I mean the vaccines as well. The other thing is, you know, the reason I got interested in malaria was the way that it changes its immunology. <laughs> so, you know, and we know, I mean, it's not quite as bad as HIV, but, um, you know, certainly we know that there's a lot of scope for malaria to evolve fairly quickly and escape from things. Um, that's what it does in the blood. So, you know, it may well be that the vaccines are, are more difficult than we... And the other thing that always strikes me is that, you know, most vaccines, nature's pretty good at developing things, and there's no natural protective lifelong immunity to malaria. It doesn't exist. And those, that, that's in people who are being exposed to malaria almost constantly and they still don't develop persistent lifelong immunity. So the chances of vaccines being better than nature, it's not impossible, we may be able to do it, but it is very difficult. And so I put malaria in that sort of category along with HIV, where vaccines are going to be really tough. And we don't really understand enough about the immunology to say that we've cracked it yet. But money going into developing vaccines, you know, is, is fine. But as you say, it's maybe the tools are already there and if, if money was developed into that. But again, to my mind, most of the, the, the failures of control of malaria have been related to political and economic changes rather than actually to the fact that we don't have the tools. DDT was a pretty good tool when we had it and it nearly got there, you know. So, it, but it was the political and economic will that sort of faded. Um, and so, again, you know, I think... It's quite difficult because you know bed nets aren't sexy, um, a difficult thing to sell to governments and things, but those are probably the things that are going to be most effective. Similarly, you know, delivery of good diagnosis and rapid treatment isn't again a sexy thing to do, whereas a vaccine, you know, everyone thinks that's great. The Centre for Disease Control in America was established after the Second World War to eradicate mm. malaria in malaria, America, yes. and they did it. Yes, that's right, and they continue to keep it at bay at great cost. I mean, there was a little outbreak in Florida in a cul-de-sac where someone imported malaria and there was transmission around, but they keep control because of such good vector control. Um, and similarly in Thailand, there's very little malaria in Thailand, and that relates to economic development, deforestation, all those kind of things. Um, you know, so it may well be that, you know, as, as countries become more economically developed, that they can control malaria. Just the thing is we have to try and translate that into Africa, where the biggest burden of the disease is. But even in Africa, there's malaria is really on the decline at the moment. Um, I think Kalifi, there's not as much, a little bit more this year, I think, than there was last year, but there's certainly been a decline in the number of cases of the RCM, which is great news. Do you think sometimes the amount of research money going into diseases of mortality, mm. do you think uh, it has somehow taken our eyes off those other neglected diseases that could be controlled for very little money? It is. It's, a, it's always about priorities, and um, and often that's about sort of advocacy for people, and often the sort of poorest people have the least, and and people with the, those neglected diseases have have even less. Um, and you know, I mean, WHO has been trying to get rid of guinea worm, for example. Again, a disease that should be very easy to get rid of because we understand what life cycles and we understand the interventions. But again, the interventions aren't a sexy vaccine. The interventions are you know clean water and. <laughs> keeping water separate from washing. So, uh, yeah, but I, I, I mean, I think it's it's difficult to know the way that um, scientific advances can be 
can make a big impact. Again, I think there's a, there's a lot of responsibility with the media and things. And I remember I was at a conference, we were talking about how scientists and journalists interact, and someone was saying, you know, maternal um, mortality in developing countries is hugely greater than maternal. And the journalist said, well, it's just not a story. <laughs> you know, a vaccine's a story. Constant death, high death rate of women in childbirth isn't isn't a story. And so you don't generate the interest and that doesn't that means that you don't generate the political drive to, to get these things funded and changed. But I don't know how we stop that. In real politics, can you can you defend the amount of money that is spent on tropical medicine? Can you say, yes, it has benefits to the British population? Well, direct, we always argue that the scientific benefits that we get from looking at tropical disease do impact on other diseases that we look at. Um, and also, you know, the increased flux of populations, um, you know, most of my HIV positive patients come from sub-Saharan Africa, you know. Um, and so the things that we learn um, about these diseases have become increasingly important in the patients we're looking after in the UK. Uh, so there's, there's a bit of traffic there. Travellers, there's again a little bit of improvement in travellers' health as well. It's good. It's important to know the best treatments of malaria from various places. I think the ba the, the most benefit is really from the just the advancement of science and uh, the advancement of knowledge that can be translated into other other sort of fields. We certainly have a moral duty to help improve the health of the, the world. Everyone's dependent on everyone else nowadays. So you know, it's often been argued, for example, the HIV. Um, should be treated as a sort of military emergency because you destabilise populations, leads to civil war, and if you donated the amount of money that you donate to a military campaign to actually delivering drugs, then you may stabilise the situation much more cheaply than having to go in with your bombers in the end. So, so I think there are a lot of I think political stability um, is is very important for development, and I think again that's another spin-off of us helping to improve health in developing countries. Um, I mean that's sort of uh, sort of looking at the benefits to ourselves rather than the sort of altruistic benefits that that um, I mean again as a doctor I think morally you have that and as I said one of the things that's very striking is how much difference you can make actually how much impact your work can have on on people um, so yeah and no, I think I, you often usually think it's a privilege to be working in developing countries and able to work in the situations and make such a difference it really is. It's only just over 30 years since tropical medicine at Oxford University had a real identity. Um, how would you evaluate it today? What's, what's its status compared to the rest of um, the Oxford Medical School? Well, if you, uh, I mean, if you look at the, the I, I sort of see it as the jewel in the crown, really, of Oxford Medical School. And if you look at, for example, it's quite interesting um, because all of the all of the people who work overseas have honorary contracts with the John Radcliffe Hospital, with the Oxford Radcliffe Trust, and that that's one of my roles is actually trying to negotiate these things, um, which can be quite tricky sometimes, um, as the rules for the NHS keep changing. Um, and if you look at the most cited institutions for research in malaria. Oxford University is of number one. The John Radcliffe Hospital is about number three. So, <laughs> so usually people cite their affiliations as being to the university and to the, the NHS trust. So the John Radcliffe comes out very well from this as well. And I think that just highlights the, the impact that Oxford University has had and the tropical network has had. It's made a huge, huge advances in, in, uh, in tropical disease. So, yeah, the jewel of the crown, I think.